Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Easter. I'm John Schmidt, the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship. And today, we're wrapping up a series that we've been in, a series of Mark, where we've called it Jesus in Action, because Mark, the uh, gentleman who wrote Mark's gospel, he wrote his account of Jesus' life and ministry and the things Jesus said and did with mainly an emphasis on Jesus' action. It's a real compact gospel. And anytime people tell me that, oh, the Bible's too boring, go, well, you haven't read Mark. Mark is just like an action movie. It's just one sequence after another. Because Mark was convinced if we could see Jesus in action, then we'd believe that he is the Son of God and that he came into the world to save us from our sins. And so this morning, uh, we're going to the last, we're going to get two more action sequences when Jesus is crucified and when Jesus rises from the dead. And there's a lot to be learned uh, from these two sequences about who Jesus is. And Mark, uh, it's just like a screenplay for a movie where we're zooming in on Jesus and we don't want to miss a thing. And so today I am so excited because we saved the best two parts of the movie for last. The best two scenes, it's the big finish, okay? And it's amazing. And so I'm glad to be with you this morning, and I'm so glad we get to see Jesus in action. I'm so glad God inspired Mark to write this down. So I'm going to have a word of prayer, ask God to speak to us through his word, and to make Easter come alive for you and me. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. It's our guide in all matters of faith and practice. I thank you that Mark was faithful to record the things that he heard. And gracious God, and that people saw, they witnessed you, Lord, do these things. I thank you that you died on the cross for our sins. I thank you that you rose again. And oh, gracious God, I pray that today you'll speak and move me out of the way and convince us of those amazing truths so we can live our lives in newness and in power and in full relationship with you. We thank you for Easter. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this day. Help us make the most of it. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Hey, if you need a pen to fill in some blanks, if you're visiting with us, uh, just take a, raise your hand when the ushers will bring a pen to you. you don't want, you're going to want to take some notes on this. The top of your outline, by the way, inside your bulletin, there's an outline, should have mentioned that, that's where that is, uh, that you received when you came in. At the top of it, we started with Mark 1.1. We're finishing up Mark. At the beginning of his gospel, he tells you why he wrote it. So we'll believe, so that we'll hear the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so every sequence, every action scene that happens uh, in Mark's gospel is to convince us of that, that Jesus really is the Son of God and that he's the Messiah. And if you're not sure what all that means, we're going to unpack it for you here in these last two scenes. First of all, the scene where Jesus is crucified for our sins. I mean, you've got to think of it as like a DVD where you're hitting scene selection and we're hitting a scene where Jesus is crucified for our sins. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. That was the hilltop where he was crucified. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. And then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who'd get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign was fastened to the cross announcing the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. It didn't read robbery, didn't read murder, didn't read insurrection. read the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries, their sign said something else, were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. The people passing by shouted abuse. Shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then save yourself. Come down from that cross. The leading priests and teachers of the religious law also mocked Jesus. 
He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. And if you'd underline that, I'm going to point that out. We'll come back to that. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. And then at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary temple was torn in two. And you can underline that. We're going to talk about that in a second, too. It was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. Action scene. We just see it all. It's like you're right there. Jesus is being crucified. Guards are gambling for his clothes. And when he gives up a loud cry and breathes his last, a Roman centurion, not a religious leader, the religious leaders are mocking him. People are spitting on him, laughing at him. Not the Roman centurion, this this man who had no theological training. Probably never even heard of the term Messiah or anything. He watched the way Jesus died and he went, No, this man has to be the Son of God. That line will be forever burned in my memory because I grew up in Kansas, and I remember the first Easter I moved down here. I went attended a church where they did an Easter cantata, and they were acting out this whole sequence, and they had a gentleman who was playing the Roman centurion, and when it got to his part, he looked up at the cross, and the person playing Jesus said, had died and hung his head down, and the man at the foot of the cross in the Roman soldier costume said, Surely this man was the son of God. (laughs) I went, well, there you go. I mean, I will never forget that verse in Scripture, ever. (laughs) Because not only do I know he was a Roman centurion, but that he he liked grits. Okay, I mean, that was certain. (laughs) I will never read that the same. I just get to that line, I go, okay, that's the way he said it, too. That has to be right. doesn't matter what accent he used. What matters is that he noticed. And that's why it's in there. Mark said, I mean, this is a scene again where even the most unlikely person would go, I mean, this guy had watched hundreds of people die. He was an executioner. Never seen anybody die like that. I mean, Mark wrote this gospel so we'd believe the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. The Roman centurion didn't miss it. The religious leaders did. They didn't get it. He got it. It's important this Easter Sunday morning that you and I get it. Don't miss it. Jesus in action, he is the son of God and displays it even in the way he dies. Hmm. Here's an important note. When those people missed it, most of the people who witnessed Jesus' crucifixion misunderstood what the Messiah came to do. The Messiah. A little bit below there, you'll see written that Messiah, if you're not familiar with this, Messiah is the same as the word Christ, which means anointed one 
or deliverer. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. Same thing. Just means the anointed one. So Jesus Christ is Jesus the Messiah. It's a title that this would be a descendant of King David. And there had been a prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah uh, about, and we read this at Christmas time all, all the time when Jesus is born, that he will be a wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And people had hung on to this, that one day there would come a great deliverer, a descendant of King David, the greatest king ever, and he would deliver his people. And they were under subjection to the Roman Empire, and they thought it meant a political king, like David had been a political king, but more, some kind of supernatural political king who would live forever. And so they were confused, especially when they saw Jesus dying on the cross, because many thought that he was the Messiah. He claimed to be the Messiah, but how could it be? How could you put it together? John 12, 34. We understood from the scriptures that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say the Son of Man will die? Just who is the Son of Man anyway? I mean, how does it all fit together? Where they went wrong was they thought he was coming to establish a political realm and an earthly kingdom and to defeat the Romans. And Jesus came to set up a heavenly kingdom and defeat sin and death forever. So he is Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But it was a much bigger scale than anybody had ever comprehended. And the only way it was ever going to be possible to conquer sin and death forever was for him to die on the cross voluntarily. The nails didn't hold Jesus to the cross. He held himself on the cross. So here's a life application. Even though people in Jesus' day, many of them misunderstood what the Messiah came to do, we must not misunderstand what Jesus came to do. You can put your name in there. My name's in there. John must not misunderstand what Jesus came to do. This Easter, let's make it abundantly clear. Jesus had told his disciples again and again, I'm going to suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. He told them it over and over again, but they hadn't understood it. Isaiah, the same one who'd prophesied that he'd be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, said this, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And that's why I had you underline up there. The people, when they were mocking him, they said he saved others, but he can't save himself. Ironically, that's exactly right. The only way he could save you and me is if he died for us. On that cross, Jesus died for John Schmidt's sins. Jesus died for your sins. And if you, if you are glad for that this morning, will you say Amen. This is why we celebrate Easter. He saved others, but he can't save himself. That's right. Ironically, everything they said was true. They meant it as mockery, but it's true. He didn't want to save himself. So he could save us all. But there's more. If you flip your outline over, Titus 2.14 Jesus gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. It's not just that our sins will be forgiven so we don't go to hell when we die. He saved us so we could have a right relationship with God. He could fill us with his power and we can live life as as he's always wanted us to live it. 
more and better life than we ever dreamed of. That's why he came. To forgive us of our sins. To pay a penalty we could never pay. And to give us new life. A right standing, a right relationship with God. Because God is holy and blameless. No sin. He can't have sin in his presence. Well, how can we come to Christ if I'm sinful and he's sinless? How can I have a right relationship with him? Well, if only if somebody settles that and pays the payment for my sins once and for all. But the payment for sin is death. And that's why it's significant in the note here. That's why it's significant that Mark wrote down that the curtain in the temple was torn in two when Jesus died. It matters. It's significant. Everything that Mark wrote down is significant. It's significant that the pagan guard, the centurion, noticed when nobody else did. It's significant that even though they were mocking Jesus, they said the right thing. And it's significant that the curtain was torn from top to bottom because that means God did it. Now, if you don't know about the curtain, you go, well, John, who cares about the draperies? Well, this isn't just a window curtain. It was more than that. The writer of Hebrews explains this. This is from Hebrews 9. The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place place of worship here on earth. When the children of Israel came out of slavery, God told them to build a portable temple, a tabernacle. Later on, Solomon built an official brick and mortar solid stone temple. And it was amazing. But inside of both of those, the central feature to it were two rooms. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. In the first room were a lampstand, a table, and sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. Then there was a curtain, and behind that curtain was a second room called the most holy place, or the holy of holies in some translations. And in that room, I've just put an ellipsis in there, but in that room is where the Ark of the Covenant was. There was also an a, a incense altar there where you could burn incense, but there was a the chest that the Hebrews kept the Ten Commandments in. God instructed them how to build this. They carried the Ten Commandments with them in a sacred chest, the Ark of the Covenant. And it represented the agreement between God and his people. And the writer of Hebrew goes, Hebrews goes on, The priests regularly entered that first room, the holy place, as they performed their religious duties, but only the high priest ever entered the most holy place, and only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So you couldn't just go walk into God's presence. The most holy place, right on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were angels that faced each other, with their wings touching. And God told Moses, when you speak to me inside the most holy place, speak there, where I'll be right on top of the covenant. I'm spirit, you can't see me. But that's where my presence, talked to me there. And so when the priest would come in, he would sprinkle the blood of an animal that died on the top, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And he would confess his sins and the sins of the people. And this sacrifice had to be repeated year after year, over and over. And animals slaughtered and blood splattered over and over. And everyone longed for the day when this could be changed. Only the high priest could go in and there was this elaborate ceremonial cleansing. Because you never walked into God's presence unless you'd taken care of that because you could be struck dead. In fact, they wore bells on the hem of their robe. And they tied a rope around their ankle. 
so that when we went behind the curtain, if they had done things in an unworthy manner and, and the bell stopped tinkling and you heard a thud, you could pull them out. It's true. And, well, how can we ever have a relationship with a God who's so holy and we're so sinful? And the animals die on our behalf, but it's, but it's not an even trade. And so it has to be repeated over and over again. Could there ever be a sacrifice made once for all time for all people's sins so everybody could come into God's presence? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, well, that's what Jesus did. This is a little later in Hebrews, Hebrews 10. And so, dear brothers and sisters, now we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place ourselves because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened up a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. When Jesus died on that cross and his blood was shed for you and me, that paid for all my sins. The wages of sin is death. I can't die for you and you can't die for me because I'm just as much a sinner as you are. And you're just as much a sinner as I am. But what if a sinless person came into the world? A person who never sinned. Well, that's Jesus, the only one. And what if he died in our place? Well, then he could do that. And so he did. And the sacrifice was made. The penalty was paid in full. And Mark says at the time he died, in another gospel account, he says, it is finished. The entire sacrificial system is paid off. And there's no more need for the curtain. It's ripped from top to bottom by God himself. Come on in. Anyone can come. You know, my wife and I were talking about this, and we remember at a time when we were in ministry that God really brought this home to us, how important it is to have somebody who can make a way for you into a place where you would never have access yourself. And uh, we were laughing because we... Uh, Reminded, we first started out in ministry, worked with a ministry to high school kids uh, called Young Life in Houston, Texas. And it was a great ministry, and we loved the people we met. And there were, God did a lot of things in a lot of ki- high school kids' hearts. And so we got to know them, we got to know their parents. And there was one parent we got to know, uh, his son, his whole, his whole life was changed by a relationship with Christ. And so we got to know these parents, and they were so excited about our ministry. And they wanted to do something kind for us. And this guy was a, a bank president, and he was a big fan of um, the Houston Rockets. And so he called me one day. He said, John, I got two courtside seats available. If you and your wife can get down here in the next half hour, you can go to the game with me and sit at courtside. Well, we were there in eight minutes. Okay, I mean, we made it. So we show up at his house, and we go, okay, we're going to go. I mean, this is going to be the greatest thing ever, courtside seats. I love basketball. Anyway, um, so... Uh, we were so excited. We get there to his house, and he, we get in his car, and his car won't start. The battery's dead. He goes, well, let's take your car. Now, what you need to understand at this time is we had just started in ministry, and we were just barely getting by. We weren't making beans, and I was driving an old car that I bought from my brother, and I think he got it from his wife's dad after I mean, their family after he passed away or something. It was an old uh, 1975 Galaxy 500. If you think big boat car, okay, a two-door that's like, very long and very heavy, and it was just not something you want to be seen in if you're a bank president, probably. Anyway, um, because this would have been, you know, 15 years later, it was like a 15-year-old car. So we are, uh, so he gets in the back seat of my Galaxy 500, and we drive down to the Rockets game. Well, he parks in the parking deck, he parked in the parking deck where 
the um, players and all the officials for the Houston Rockets play, the NBA players and stuff. So we drive right up to the parking deck, and this parking deck goes, whoa, 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 what do you think you're doing? Get that car out of here. You're not parking here. Only he didn't say it nearly that nice. But anyway, um, he told us we weren't parking there. And then I rolled down the window, and the bank president had his ID with him. He held out. He goes, George, he's with me. And the guy goes, oh, yes, sir. Hey, you can park right in here. And so we drove in, and we parked, and I promise you this, we parked next to a Rolls-Royce and a Bentley, and there was my Galaxy 500 right there. <laughs> and so we're walking out of the parking deck, past the parking deck, and I go, hey, don't let anybody scratch it, okay? <laughs> yeah, I didn't really say that. I thought about it. Anyway, so I, I should have. I had my chance. So then we walk in the entrance where the players go in and the team owners and all these important people go in, all their guests, the wives and everything, and we go into this place and we walk right down the side of the court and sit there and everywhere we went every time there was somebody who would stop us they go it's okay he's with me he made a way i could walk right in because he'd paid in full he'd paid my way occasionally people go do you believe jesus rose from the dead i do do you believe people have to believe that oh yeah and i'll tell you why in just a second But I want you to understand this because it proves that he died on the cross for our sins. We'll hit that in a second. But, man, the fact that he paid it in full, this grants us access to the throne room of heaven itself. And you and I can go in any time we want. Somebody once asked me, well, how do you know you're going to get into heaven? It's funny because I can share that story I just shared with you about the guy with his past. I could imagine if I was getting to the gates of heaven, whoa. What are you doing here? You're too much of a sinner to come in. I can imagine Jesus coming. It's okay, George. He's with me. He's with me. Paid in full. Mark said that's why he died on the cross. The Roman centurion said, surely this man was the son of God. Do you know he died on the cross for your sins too? That day, he died on the cross for my sins and yours. The sins of the whole world were placed on him. And that's why he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First time in his life, he knew what it was like to have sin interrupt his relationship with the Father. And that was the hardest part of the whole thing. But because he died and paid those sins, I am forgiven and so are you. All are forgiven who come to him. Don't miss that today. That's scene one. And here's the final scene. I mean, that's the scene one for today. The second scene we're going to look at is the final scene in Mark where Jesus rises from the dead. He died on Friday evening. He hung on the cross for six hours, three o'clock in the afternoon. He died. His body was taken down, hurriedly placed in a tomb. A wealthy man had donated the tomb. Some women who had helped sponsor Jesus' ministry and cared for the disciples, had followed along. They saw where they placed him, and then it got dark. And everybody had to go home. The Jews observed a strict Sabbath obedience, which meant from sundown Friday night till sundown Saturday night, nobody could work. And so nobody had time during that 24-hour period to go and take care of Jesus' body. But the action resumes here in Mark 16.1. But Saturday evening, after the sun set, the shops opened up, the Sabbath was over, and Mary Magdalene and Salome, 
and Mary, the mother of James, went out and purchased some burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. But because it was after sundown, it was dark. No electric lights. Couldn't go out to the tomb. So the next morning, very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way there, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? The tomb was a small cave cut into the side of a cliff. And there's a small entrance there. The body would be carried in. Uh, the people who carried it in would climb out. There would be a large stone that would be rolled in front of the entrance with a, a groove cut below the door so the stone would fall in and seal it. It was very heavy, and they didn't know how they were going to move it. Who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up. They saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. And when they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go, go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there, just as he told you before he died. And the women are stunned. They'd gone there in grief, thinking they were going to go and anoint Jesus' body for burial. I mean, they'd watched him murdered, first of all, beaten within an inch of his life, and then murdered brutally on a cross for crimes he never committed. People spit on him. Their own religious leaders had completely disillusioned them. They'd cried their eyes out. And now it's Sunday morning. And an angel appears and says, no, it's all true. He isn't here. He's risen just as he said. Now, all this matters. Here's a note here. It matters that Jesus rose from the dead. Because it proves who he said he, he was. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be that anointed one. He claimed that he could pay for the sins of the whole world, that anybody who would come to him would be forgiven. Paul talks about this. He says, look, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Why? Because if Christ raises from the dead, it proves he's the Son of God. If he's the Son of God, it proves that he was the one who could make that payment because only by being the son of God could he live a sinless life. I mean, anybody could claim to be something, but what would prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that you really are the son of God if you can overcome death itself? If Christ has not been raised and your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins, and in that case, all who've died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in, is in Christ, in Christ is only for this life, we're more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. I spoke with someone this morning who lost a loved one recently. They'd come up to our um, sunrise service afterward, and they were, uh, they'd been crying. And I said, are you okay? And they said, yeah, they just lost a loved one just recently. And I said, well, I'm glad you could come here. And they went, me too. I'm glad too. Because it's the most encouraging thing. The person that had passed away knew the Lord. And they said, but everything we talk about here on Easter gives us hope. I remember sitting with my siblings at my parents' funeral. My dad passed first and then my mom. And sitting with my siblings and we were sitting there uh, after my, mom, my dad passed. And then my mom, we, I remember talking to one of my sisters. And 
saying, uh, John, this is all true, isn't it? I go, absolutely. It's all true. Jesus really did die on the cross for our sins, and he really did rise from the dead. And because my mom and dad had faith in Christ, they're alive and well. In fact, they're doing better than they've ever done. And through faith in Christ, you and I, when we, our mortal bodies die, we'll have eternal bodies that will never die again. It's all true, and Christ proved it when the tomb was empty. It proved he was no longer there. Now, if that's good news to you this morning, would you say amen? amen. Well, it was good news to the women. They trudged there in sadness and sorrow in the dark. They ran from the tomb with the sun coming up because it's a new day. I reminded everybody of this at our sunrise service. I love sunrise services because you're in the middle of an illustration. I have to come up with illustrations while we're at every other meeting here. But at a sunrise service, you're part of it. You come to a sunrise service in the darkness. You leave in the light. You come to a sunrise service and it's still night and it's scary. You leave and the sun's coming up and the birds are singing. Because it's a new day. There's a new relationship now. The curtain's been torn. You and I can walk boldly into God's presence no matter who we are, no matter what we've done. And it's finished. And Jesus proved it because the tomb was empty. And so the women ran and they told the disciples, and that's where we pick up the action again. After Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out seven demons. And she went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping and told them what had happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she'd seen him, they didn't believe her. Afterward, he appeared in a different form to two of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. They rushed back to tell the disciples, to tell the others. But no one believed them. And still later, Jesus appeared to the 11 disciples as they were eating together, and he rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief. Because they'd refused to believe those who had seen him after he'd risen from the dead. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will, not be, con- will be condemned. So here's a life application for you and me. We must stop our stubborn unbelief. Jesus really did rise from the dead. He died on the cross for my sins and yours. You cannot pay this on your own. No one is good enough to stand before holy God on their own merits. We must come to Christ and give our lives to him. Praise God Jesus hung on that cross for you and me. Praise God he took my punishment upon himself. Praise God that we are set free through Christ and Christ alone. One of the disciples, Thomas, had said, I'm never going to believe unless I touch Jesus' hands. If he's really alive, then I need to touch his hands where the nails went in. I need to touch his side where the spear went in, when the soldier pierced his side to see if he was really dead. And so Jesus appeared to him specifically, and he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. We must stop our stubborn unbelief. I thought about how to write that. We must stop unbelieving, but that didn't sound right. Has God been after you? Have you been running from God? Stop running. If you've been far from God and you need to come to him, hear the good news this morning. The curtain was torn so that all of us can come, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done. You come today. 
Have you backslidden and slid away from Jesus? You've been gone from church for a long time. The only reason you're here on Sunday morning is somebody made you come. Somebody brought you here. You have to do it to eat Easter lunch at Grandma's. Well, then praise God. Maybe God wanted to use that to get you here so you could hear the good news that God loves you. And he, as Titus said here, he gave his life to free you from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. His good deeds. Come back. Stop being stubborn. Stop being stubborn in your unbelief. Come back today. The last life application was there to go into all the world and tell the good news. That I really felt like as I prayed about this overnight that I just want to stop here today and I just want to give a chance for people to come today. If you've been running from God, then you come today. You come right now. We're going to have a word of prayer here. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here and sing. But we're going to have a word of prayer. You come today. You come to Christ. If you have fallen away from him and you've drifted away from his people, you haven't been to church in a long time, you come back today. Don't be afraid. The angel said, don't be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore. We don't have to be afraid that God will condemn us if we come. The curtain is torn. Our sins are paid in full. You come today. We're going to stand and sing a closing song together here. Um, I'm going to let the sights uh, go there. Let me have a word of prayer for us right now. And after that prayer, um, I'm going to want you to come. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I thank you for Mark's gospel. I thank you that he showed us exactly who you are by your deeds and the way you lived, by your deeds and the way you died, by your deeds and the way you overcame death itself. So, Lord, I pray that we will no longer fight you. If we have been fighting you and been stubborn, then we need to give it up today and we need to surrender. And I pray, Lord, if anyone's heart is beating fast, that today they will surrender. Today, without delay. In a moment of silence, if God is calling you to make a decision to follow him, to come back to him, then you come right now. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus, the powerful name of Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.